Hello and welcome to The HOA Show, where we discuss the news, problems, trends, and critical issues relating to life in a homeowner association. Join us every episode, and together we'll explore how to survive and thrive in the dizzying world of HOAs. Hello, and welcome to The HOA Show. I'm your host, Ryan Gazelle, and in this episode, we'll be discussing shared experience rentals, which I believe may be lawyerese for short-term rentals. I, I don't know, but we'll get into that in a second. I'm joined today by Matthew Gardner and Maria Cow. Matt is a partner at Richards & Ober, based out of the greater Los Angeles area. He's a native of Cincinnati and graduated from Notre Dame before finishing law school at the University of Dayton. He is very active in CAI, doing a lot of teaching and speaking engagements, and he's focused his practice on HOAs for how long, Matt? Oh, wow. It's been uh, almost 20 years now. Wow. 20 years. Okay. Maria is a partner at Briscoe, Ivester, and Basil, a law firm based out of the Bay Area. She's a graduate of UC Irvine. My brother went there. And the Whittier Law School. She is also uh, very active in CAI and is focused on the world of HOA law since 2009. Is that correct, Maria? That's right. Never a dull moment in the HOA world. <laughs> okay, so what is a shared experience rental? Is that a new politically correct term for short-term rentals? Is it more than that? What, what exactly is it? Yeah, that's a good question, Ryan. I think the, the easiest way to describe it is we've spent a lot of time in the HOA industry uh, really talking about uh, rentals. And, and what that means for most people is usually thinking about the use of their unit or their residence in terms of how they present it out to their neighbors or how it may be used for living spaces. And so what we're really talking about when we're talking about shared experience rentals is something outside of the general living spaces. And so some of the examples that we've come up with and that we've seen have been pools, parking spaces, backyards, storage areas, anything that's not connected exactly to the residential area, um, but maybe kind of connected to it that it's not really the living areas. And so that's why we, we kind of gave that different tone to it so that people are thinking about it a little bit differently than a living space. That's not a legal term, though. That's just kind of the general colloquial word term that, that people are using now. Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of a collection of those terms. And, you know, we can talk about some of the examples. For instance, one of the uh, websites that we've seen pop up has been Swimply. Um, and it really focuses on pool rentals. So anybody that has a backyard pool uh, they may want to choose to put their pictures, put their pool on a website and make it available for uh, hourly use. So somebody can come in and put in an area that they may be visiting, or maybe it's just a weekend and they don't have a pool uh, in their own home, in their own neighborhood. And they may just say, hey, look, who's got a pool that's available uh, on this Saturday afternoon? Maybe they want to use it for you know, a 15-minute swim, or maybe they want to have a, a children's party there. And this website really makes that uh, opportunity available for somebody to come in and, and host their pool and get some financial benefit. Swimply. Swimply.com. That's one of the first ones that I came across. And if you actually go to the website, you can see that they've actually expanded now beyond swimming pools. They're looking to making basketball courts, if they have tennis courts, uh, if they have backyards, uh, maybe if they ha even have like a, a, an outdoor gym or a private studio or a gym. They are actually using that word experience now. So that's one of the reasons that we, we use that shared experience as well, because Swimply is now saying, hey, if you have this great amenity at your home and you're not using it and you want to monetize it, put it up on our site and let people peruse it and see if it's something that you might be interested in, you know, rent out by the hour. So 
they are really expanding to everything beyond swimming pools to what they call experience. That's amazing. I, I must live under a rock because I have not heard of this, but you mentioned more. Uh, you said parking spaces. Yeah. So there's a, a, another one. It's called neighbor.com and it really does talk about any underused spaces. So it could be parking spaces. Uh, it could be storage areas, uh, sheds, basements, anything where you feel like you have underutilized space and you really want to make that available. Now, obviously you're inviting people into your to your home and into your residence. But it is one of those interesting areas that's developed. When I was looking at some of these websites, some of them spring back all the way to 2017, 2018. So even though we're just now starting to hear about them, these websites do go back a couple of years. And, and I think as they're gaining steam and popularity and people are really looking at some of the benefits, maybe in the down economy of, of trying to monetize their personal space, it really is a good way to kind of go out there and, and see what other uses people have. The other one that's kind of fun is uh, called Sniff Spot, a uh, private dog park. So you can list your backyard as a use for people who may be in town or may not have their own private space, uh, maybe too far from a dog park. And so people offer their private space for use for your, your dog or your pet as maybe a dog run, uh, a poop spot, whatever it might be. Um, but you can, again, you just go in and, and you go to this website on SniffSpot. You can enter an address uh, and you can look at what those options are available. Some are as, as small as backyard, some that, that literally is a dog run, a fenced in area that's maybe two feet wide uh, by you know five or six feet long. And they're <laughs> offering that as a place for, for somebody to come in and rent. And the costs go from like $5 an hour up to 15 or 25. So Really, it just depends on what you're looking at using it for. And it really looks at, you know, giving you the opportunity to figure out what it is that, that you might be interested in. There's a, I think I even saw one that it's acres and acres. So somebody's backyard that, that's in a, uh, a forest or something, you could use that and, and have your dog get access to that if you wanted to. There are a wide variety of choices. And those are three of the, the examples that, that we've seen. I know Maria's dealt with a couple of the other ones and, and looked into some of those other websites as well, because there's a number of different amenities that people are, are offering. Maria, it colored me shocked and appalled already, but uh, I'm sure you'll elevate that. What, what, what have you heard of? Well, there are a lot of apps out there, and I don't want to turn this into uh, advertising for no. your experience rentals. No, I, I think we need to understand what the potential exposures are, really. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Uh, so more focused on the parking rentals, there's curb flip, you're booking someone's parking space. And, you know, I run into in my daily practice, a lot of emotional response when it comes to the membership and who's allowed to park where and whether people are doing what they're supposed to do with the parking. And geez, if you're seeing strangers park in your neighbor's spot, and it's not someone you recognize, and maybe you have a crime problem in that particular neighborhood, this could cause some more issues for your particular association. Then there's also Set Scouter. So if you want to turn your home into a reality show set, or a space where some other types of filming may occur, that's a possible app that you could use to do that. And then if you wanted to turn your space into a venue for, you know, a large party or a meeting or again, more filming, you could book something like Peer Space. 
I haven't used any of those three apps except for PeerSpace. Um, it is very similar to an Airbnb type of experience. When you use the app, you just kind of browse the rentals and you get a price and you just have access to the thing. But at least as far as PeerSpace, I don't see a lot of residential or um, association common area space on there, but there really isn't anything to prevent someone from just putting up their association clubhouse as a listing or even the association doing it themselves. And we'll probably talk about some other issues that have come up more recently. Um, When Matt and I were preparing our discussion today, something even newer came up and it was even more alarming to us. Well, have you guys seen any actual claims come out or situations where you've had to get involved as a result of one of these shared rental experiences? Yeah, I have. And in fact, um, uh, this first came to my attention during the pandemic, which, I mean, you, you mentioned that you hadn't heard much of a- any of these kind of listings or, or apps, but that's the first time I heard of it. And kind of looking a little bit more at Swimply, that tracked with with my experience as well, which is that it really just exploded during the pandemic when people's activities were limited. And, you know, initially, I think Swimply, if you look at what it was designed to do, was really just about individual homeowners uh, who are listing their own pool. But during the pandemic is when I think, you know, people were really looking for opportunities to get outdoors and, and you know, had limited options for doing that. Uh, I actually had a client, a homeowners association in the Riverside area, where the homeowner had listed their pool and were using it for hosting uh, events, parties, or whatever. And, and the association finally realized that's what was going on. And they brought this to my attention. They said, here's this website. This homeowner has a pool in their backyard and they were putting it on Swimply and it was available on weekends and holidays. And it was to the point where it was during the summer of 2020 and they were actively pursuing any sort of, of openings for the, the backyard pool. Uh, and when we talked to the homeowner about it, we actually called them in for a, a hearing. And they said essentially that they were only using it for friends and because they had a lot of friends who didn't have pools. And so that they were basically using it as a hosting service for friends and, and family. But it was interesting because they mentioned a couple of things. And one was, you know, essentially, uh, we didn't know that that was a problem, right? Because this is our swimming pool. Uh, and they didn't seem to understand how that might impact the rest of the, the community terms of putting this up for use. The second part of it was they actually said one of the great things about Swimply was that they promised additional insurance for use of this backyard pool. And it was one of the things that helped them afford to be able to use the pool was that additional insurance. Now, of course, you know, as individual homeowners with a pool, that's probably something that they should already be insuring on their own. And so people were showing up. It was clear that this was beyond friends uh, and neighbors because there was trash, people were leaving plastic cups from parties, loud noises. And it was really on the weekends and it was on holidays. And it was getting to the point where people were parking in, in neighbor spaces in their yards, leaving trash in their yards. And it was clearly having an impact on the community. And the homeowner didn't really seem to understand how that might be something that would not be acceptable use for their individual pool in the backyard. And so uh, we did have to call them into a hearing. We explained it to them. After that, they delisted their unit from Swimply uh, because we, we did suggest that it was causing problems and it was a violation of the residential use. 
But that's where it does become a problem of HOA communities because there is that kind of overlapping desire to have your own personal space and be able to use it however you want without understanding you know, the impact that it's going to have on, on the surrounding community, the parking areas, the driveways. Uh, the gates. You know, You've the got gates, the entry everything. gates. Yeah. And I could conceivably, I mean, the, what I do, the, the first thing I think of is somebody uh, is drinking at the party and then they run into the gate and they destroy the entry gate and they've been drinking at the party and they're just a renter. You know, what, what happens then? And those are the concerns, the main concerns I see, hitting somebody on, on the streets, running into another car, uh, all these added risks that have been entered into the community that weren't contemplated for. Right. right. And that's one, that's one of those things that, you know, I, I think actually, um, to your point, Ryan, wondering about what happens beyond just in the backyard, the impact on the, the community and the common area as well. And that's one of those things homeowners really aren't thinking about when they're putting their backyard amenities up on these websites. You mentioned that uh, Swimbly has uh, insurance that they offer the, the renter. I, I wonder, though, would they be able to even add the association and the management company as additionally insured? I suspect not. Yeah, I don't know. that. And I think, again, that kind of really looks at uh, what it was that th- this app or this website was intended to do originally. And I think you know, as the number of, of HOA communities increases, obviously that makes those amenities much more valuable in, in some of those locations. But it, it doesn't seem as though it was originally intended to be used within HOA or, or communities. But obviously that's going to be where it's, it's going to be seeing a lot of growth. And, and we, you know, Marie and I have, have talked to some other people about this. And a lot of the people had the same impact, uh, same kind of response that you did, Ryan, which is no idea that these kind of platforms were there. And, and so I, I do expect we'll probably start to see more and more of these kind of issues in, in homeowners association. I think it's probably more the younger crowd that, that's savvy with their phones and these kinds of apps that, that are doing this, uh, a little less so the, the older folks. Maria, have you uh, had any specific experiences? Well, I don't know about specific experiences. There are some that I'll talk about a little later, but you know, at least with respect to Swimply, and we keep using Swimply because, you know, they appear to be putting a lot of time, money and energy into getting this expanded and pushing through legislation that failed, thankfully, but it's not like they're not going to keep trying. But, you know, the risks that you guys identified, I mean, they're there. And even worse, so we've heard in about 2022, Someone rented out their pool in New Jersey to, uh, you know, like just a birthday party. They post their pool on Swimply for about $65 an hour for up to 10 guests at a capacity of 60, I guess. And at the end of the pool party, which is probably only a few hours, apparently one of the little girls was found dead at the bottom of the pool. Oh, my gosh. It's terrible. I mean, we don't know anything about the supervision or what was offered, but I mean, it was, it's obviously something that wasn't considered and we don't know anything about whether the pool was, you know, up to code, but, you know, in hearing this coming up, I mean, local governments are already responded by banning the rental of amenities it's kind of slowly creeping up in policy. It hasn't been widespread yet, but this cop the nation 
hopefully it'll get more traction, but you know, it's something that we have to be responding to. So what types of things can uh, a community do? Is, is there just maybe a blanket shared experience guideline they could put in place? So that's probably something that each association is going to have to decide for themselves because, you know, it's possible that they just want to outright ban this type of rental. And in the state of the law of California right now, that's still possible-ish to do. But really, when Matthew and I presented on this at CCAL very recently, we really had this question for some of our CIRMS attendees as to how you want to inform your members to insure for this. I have a suspicion that the Swimply insurance policy does not cover the association or the management company or even the member that's listing on the site. I mean, do you have any initial alarms or red so, flags that you're thinking? Great question. And as I said before, this is the first I'm hearing about this. You know, uh, in, in general, insurance folks are, are not very exciting. They sit behind a, a desk all day and, and crank things out. Nobody likes to hear them speak very often. You know, we're, we're, we're very hermity people. So they're very likely unaware that this kind of risk uh, exists. You know, carriers don't like any type of shared experiences. Uh, it's just adding unnecessary risk. So when a carrier first underwrites a community, you know, we provide them with the most important piece of data, which is how many units there are. You know, a 500 unit community will have far more liability risk than a 100 unit community or even a 20 unit community. The greater the number of units, the higher the odds of a claim. So with a 500 you know, unit community, the odds of someone suing is probably around five times higher than a 100 unit community. They've looked at the data, they set their rates based on their actuarial experience, uh, and any type of a shared experience rental is just importing risk that the carriers haven't rated for. So even if just five units in a 100 unit community rent out their pools or their properties for a party, once a month for a year. So five units, 100 unit community, uh, once a month for a year. Let's say each rental group averaged five people. That's 300 more visitors on the property than the carrier was expecting that year. And statistically speaking, that risk is much more litigious. Owners do sue their own communities. We all know that. But generally, when you have some skin in the game, meaning you own one one hundredth of that community, you're less likely to sue because you're suing yourself. That still happens, but the likelihood is, is far less. If I'm in my own community and I slip and fall on something, I'm going to the doctor, my doctor, and I'm using my own health insurance. I'm not going to sue the HOA and hold them responsible. But I could very easily see a scenario where somebody that's just renting uh, a pool for the day or the clubhouse or the, somebody's fancy backyard, if my daughter slips and falls, I'm you know, much more likely to sue that unit owner and is that unit owner going to have all the money? No, I'm going to sue the association. A savvy attorney is always going to name the association and the management company. So statistically speaking, you're less likely to sue if you're an owner. And that's why an apartment risk is more expensive to insure than a condo risk. That's the exact same size. So any type of shared experience rental is going to be a risk that hasn't been contemplated by the policy. The carrier has not received the rate that they need to offset that risk. So they're not going to be happy with it. And as I said, I've never heard of some of these new uh, risks. So I imagine in the years coming, as claims start to occur, that's when the carriers will take action. 
until we start to see claims, the carriers are not going to address it. They're not going to add it to their underwriting guidelines. But as soon as they start to see claims, that's when they will ask questions about that and ask for warranties stating that there are no shared experience rentals or we have guidelines in place that will prevent a unit owner from using any kind of a shared experience rental. Now, obviously, the problem then becomes enforcement. Who monitors that? But I guess once you've got some sort of a guideline, then you can at least enforce it once you become aware of the issue, right? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think your point is is accurate, which is, you know, we, we don't really know there's a problem until somebody files a claim. And that, that kind of happens in the legal side of things, too. And so when you talked about having guidelines or policies in place, I, I think it does make sense to at least anticipate, um, especially, you know, one of the things that I, I think was driving this initially was maybe the pandemic. But now we're seeing other issues that may be driving it, which is like the economy. People are looking for uh, income streams, right? And if we're talking about parking spaces, we're talking about pools, talking about backyards that maybe are not being used, or maybe they have some value to somebody else and you can find that as a way to bring in some income. You're going to see, I think, more and more people investigating this, searching for it, looking for it as an opportunity to really get that additional income stream going. And so it does probably make sense to have some guidelines in place so that you can anticipate it. I generally like to you know, be, be a little bit ahead of, of those type of things. Uh, when you know that those issues are going to pop up, it's better to have something you can already point to. Uh, that, that Swimply issue that I mentioned with that homeowner in the Riverside area, they didn't have a policy in place. We just went in on, on the nuisance component and the business idea that they were essentially turning their their home into a business uh, and operating a business from it. But it's funny because shortly after that conversation, I pointed that language out to them, probably about four months later, it wasn't exactly set scouter, right? Which is the, the one that allows you to, to rent it out for film purposes. But they had somebody come in with a film crew. And this time the response was very similar, which was, well, we have a friend that has a child that's uh, doing a film project. And so they, need to, they needed a, a place to do a film shoot. And so what they ended up doing was making their home available for a film location. And this was not some sort of student project. I mean, they had trucks uh, that were parking on the cul-de-sac area. They had cameras and, and equipment that were essentially elevated into the backyard area. So it was all visible. They were blocking streets. And it was the same homeowners that were uh, essentially looking for another way to essentially offset costs or, or do whatever to, to raise income. But it was the same conversation that we had to have the second time. Look, you live in a community. You kind of have to have these overlapping uh, interests that, that really guide how you're going to reside here. You don't get to just make any decision you want. And the response from the homeowner was, again, well, we, you know, we didn't think it was a problem. We checked with the city. You know, to Maria's point, we checked with the city and the city said it was OK. They filled it out. And so they really went from there. And so without those kind of guidelines in place, if you live in a community where this might be an appealing way to have additional income sources. You know, if you, if you do have a lot of owners with pools or if you do have uh, additional parking spaces or, or those type of things, you may want to get ahead of the problem and, and really figure it out the, the best way to do it. Uh, and now on the enforcement side, you know, we, we kind of talked about the best way to do it. And Maria and I didn't really come up with a, a plan, I think, that works for every community. But a lot of times, you know, especially when it comes to things like Swimply or maybe these parking spaces, if you can go to these websites and if you can see how much the owner is actually getting per hour and kind of do a rough estimate based on the complaints that are coming in from neighbors or whatever, you can actually try and include that as your uh, disciplinary mechanism, right? Which is 
let's find them the exact amount of money that they're getting as income to really deter them from wanting to use this continually. Because if, look, if, if their goal is to make money from it and you're really finding them exactly the amount they get or more uh, as a penalty, uh, they're going to realize it doesn't benefit them to do that anymore. Um, and, and so it really does drive the point home. So there are different ways, I think, of working with the community to figure out the best way of, of really deterring it. But it is going to come down to enforcement. And I don't think the monitoring is really going to be a problem because, at least in my experience, the two times it's come up, it's really been about the neighbors or the board members hearing directly, hey, there's just a ton of noise, a ton of traffic. This is, to, to your point, Ryan, this is outside the normal scope of the traffic for this area. Um, so we're getting a lot more people in this community. Uh, we don't recognize them. And it can't just be you know, friends coming over every weekend to use this kind of thing. Those patterns will emerge, I think. And I think a lot of board members, uh, if there is a problem, they're going to hear about it. But you know, it's like Airbnb too, right? I think everybody's experience in the HOA industry has really been kind of guided by how we respond to Airbnb complaints. There probably will be some people that go on to these sites and, and check to see whether or not their neighbors are, are actively listing their properties. So uh, you, you probably will have some some uh, assistance from from neighbors that are impacted, but you may have more proactive boards or management companies that, that may be doing that for their communities too. You mentioned the VRBO situation, the short-term rentals, and that's been around for probably 10 years or so, right? Uh, and the insurance carriers are just now starting to address that. Not every single carrier has a question on their underwriting questionnaire about that. Some do, but not all of them do. Every carrier is going to address it differently. And every state, it, the same carrier could address it differently in different states or even different locations. You know, it, it might depend, like to your point, Matt, about how much are they charging. You know, if it's on the beach in Florida, then they know that those folks are going to be paying a lot of money for those, those rentals, those VRBOs. So they view the risk probably as less than if it was in Bakersfield or something where somebody's doing it. It, getting back to your point, Matt, about the income and the financial hardships. Right now in California, so many communities are reeling from the expensive fire insurance that they have to get. I could see a scenario where a board of directors trying to do anything they can to help offset that premium is then going to say, okay, let's rent out our clubhouse to uh, film sets. Let's rent it out to, uh, to have parties and maybe trying to convert the clubhouse to get that extra income to offset the risk for the owners. Have you yeah. seen anything like that? Heard anything like that? Ryan, I'm actually really glad you brought that up because that was a question that was lingering in my mind, which is, okay, if the association wants to do this to their common area clubhouse or something like that, is there a special product that they buy? Do they buy a rider for something? And the recent issue, as recent as yesterday that I'm hearing about that hasn't ever been before my desk before is I just heard of an association that, you know, allowed a local boy scout club to use their clubhouse on a regular basis. And uh, I don't want to be the person on this podcast that's always talking about terrible things. But, you know, one of the children was a victim of, um, you know, a sex offense. And so now the association is roped into that group of claims. And, you know, I, I don't really know what's going to happen with this particular matter. But as far as I'm hearing, the insurance carrier is saying, no, 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 we're we're not covering any of this, not even a duty to defend, but maybe there's an alternative rider that you could purchase 
And that's really all I know. Yeah. I, you know, like I said, this is a new emerging exposure. I don't think the current policies have any sort of language to deal with this, to address this. They don't have the appropriate uh, exclusions in place, the appropriate policy forms to cover it. This is not the risk that they were trying to address. This is a completely separate business. You know, this is that's actually a business. It's not a nonprofit HOA anymore. It's uh, they're running a business. So I don't know of any writers that uh, the preferred carriers will say uh, are able to offer right now. I, I think if they were to find out about anything like this, they would absolutely want to get off of the account. Potentially, maybe there are private insurers that could offer a product that would address this. And if it was in place, you know, like, uh, say, a security contract, uh, you've got a security vendor that's got the appropriate insurance in place, they're naming the association as additionally insured, they're naming the management company as additionally insured, maybe a carrier might be willing to accept it if they're aware of it ahead of time and say, okay, we see you've got a written set of guidelines that your attorney drafted in place, uh, those look good. And we're going to obviously charge more rate for it because you have a greater exposure. So maybe they might be willing to do that. But my guess is right now, no. Well, I think that's really great for um, us to hear because it's just one extra layer of consideration that needs to be addressed with the boards when they consult their attorneys about something like this. I mean, Matthew and I are not insurance professionals by any means. And I'm sure Matthew does this, but I very regularly tell them like, okay, this is my opinion, but you should also consult with your insurance professional. But in knowing something like what you're saying, that there's no product that addresses this particular risk. I mean, where is the reward on, you know, renting it out for $65 an hour? You know what I mean? Right. right. It's just not worth it. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. And I don't know that the insurance policies that some of these websites offer uh, have the the appropriate language in there that would extend coverage to the management company, that would protect the board of directors and the association as a whole, as an entity. I'm sure that those correct policy forms don't exist on their very minimal policy that was probably designed not for an association, but for an individual unit owner, a homeowner. Yeah. And I think that's that's interesting too, because as as we're talking about this, um, I, I could see where you're talking about, Ryan, where boards may say, hey, look, our, our costs are going up. You know, they have the same mindset as homeowners do. We have this unused asset that sits there 90% of the time it's unused or empty. Uh, let's rent out the, the swimming pool or, or the, uh, the meeting space. But then again, I mean, just beyond the insurance issues, there's other risks too, because then from the legal perspective, um, it, it's, it's almost more like you're, you're turning it into public space. And, and, you know, that gets into all sorts of other issues that maybe boards haven't thought about in terms of, of access for disability use and things like that. And so you mm. certainly don't want to turn your community into a public space. You lose a lot of those protections that you're talking about that are usually insured. And certainly it's, it's going to be something that has unanticipated consequences. And I think that's one of the things that, that really led Marie and I to, to kind of start diving into this subject is, to your point, I, I think a lot of people aren't aware uh, of these websites. And I think even if the intention was to have them for single family residences outside of HOA communities, it's pretty clear that these these websites and, and applications are here to stay. Uh, they have staying power. They're getting funding. They definitely are, are attempting to 
expand. Uh, and so these are these are certainly, I mean, we always talk about the, the P's in, in HOAs, right? Pools, pets, and parking. Those are really the, the three areas that, that these websites are targeting. And there are amenities that people do spend a lot of time fighting over, parking especially. We have enough parking issues as it is in HOAs. The, the last thing we want to do is really add to them right. that are <laughs> attempting to fight over it. So yeah, this is really, I think, going to be an issue that we're going to see a lot more uh, over the next year or so. So would you guys recommend then that a, a board get on this as soon as possible as far as adopting written guidelines and procedures for any kind of shared experience rental and defining that? I kind of struggle with this. You know, on the one hand, I don't want to draw attention to the shared experience issue because it's one of those things where if it's not happening and you roll out a policy, then people are going to start looking into it and then maybe they start trying to do it. On the other hand, I, you know, I really do think it's um, an association by association type of situation where you just have to have the conversation with your board first before rolling out that type of policy. I mean, certainly, if you know there's suspicious activity in the membership, you want to be proactive about it and start talking about it and maybe rolling out some policies. But also, I, you know, I also hesitate to make it a priority if it's not something that anyone is interested in in a particular membership. Yeah, I agree. I think it's one of those where you, you definitely look association by association. If your community isn't really susceptible to having owners set it up this way, if you don't have a, a lot of owners with with backyard pools, if most of the parking or the yard spaces is minimal, you probably don't have to spend a lot of time. But I think it's a good conversation to have with the boards so that they're aware, so that that way they can be in tune with what's going on in their community. If you bring it to their attention and you say, just FYI, we heard about this. There's a couple of different you know, websites or applications that people may be using to kind of monetize their backyards or monetize their, their property. Uh, just be aware of it in case the, the complaints start coming in. You know uh, where to go to look for and maybe see if people are putting their, their homes or their pools on these websites. Uh, and, you know, for most things, I think getting ahead of it means if your community is ripe for that kind of abuse, then you probably want to go ahead and take the lead on, on doing that policy. But I agree with Maria. It probably makes sense to just have that conversation with the board, make them aware of it. Uh, so that if one homeowner or a couple homeowners do start realizing that there's an opportunity for this, you can nip it in the bud really quickly. And when you say nip it in the bud, do you think that a board could outright exclude them and just not allow any kind? Or is it more of uh, putting restrictions in place that are so challenging, like you'd said, when the fines are greater than the income that will dissuade them? Yeah, I think... You know, when Marie and I talked about this, we we kind of came up with some some general ideas and concepts. But but I think from our position would be yes, essentially to to prohibit this type of activity at all, uh, for the reasons that you're mentioning, Ryan, in terms of the insurance issues, but also uh, with the reality that you know while Airbnbs and short-term rentals have received some attention and some protection in in California, we're really looking at housing as a problem. I, I don't think these amenities are going to get the same sort of attention that housing has. But I don't see that California is going to respond and offer the same type of protection to these amenity rentals as they do for housing. I think there's an angle there that says every community has a shortage of housing issues. So we don't want to put too many limitations on how people are, are making housing space or living space available. I don't see the same attention being given to amenities. 
In fact, when we were looking at some of these, um, Palm Springs already has a program in place where uh, they specifically are looking at limiting properties that rent out just the pools. If you want to rent out the entire residence, Palm Springs already has a, a pretty comprehensive platform where you have to go in, you have to get approved, um, and there's a limited number of licenses that go out to those short-term rentals. Um, and it's a, it's a vacation place, right? So they know that that's where their bread and butter is, but they still are limiting the ability of owners to rent out just the pool portion. It can be part of a comprehensive rental, an Airbnb type situation, but you cannot simply go out and use Swimply without going through the, the Palm Springs program. So I would see that's probably a model that maybe other cities would follow. I would recommend, yeah, that communities that think this might be a problem look at prohibiting it outright just because uh, of the unanticipated problems that could come up. And frankly, because of the insurance issues right now, I think that that would be a good basis for, for using that as a ban or a prohibition. Yeah. I, I mean, even if there, let's say there was a claim that went through, we haven't seen one yet. And there's uh, like the pool situation that's rented out and it's the, the community pool or it's somebody's pool and a claim arises, then, you know, any potential carriers, you're going to get non-renewed by that carrier. And any potential carriers, when they see that loss history, are going to say, oh, whoa, 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 this uh, shared experience rental thing, what is this? And they're going to say, no, we don't want any part of that. And then your premium is going to be five, 10 times as higher than it, than it was before if you're able to, to even find coverage. I mean, you can always find coverage, but at what affordability price? There's a certain threshold where it's just not affordable anymore and you just have to, to self-insure, which is a challenge in itself. Uh, Maria, did you have any other thoughts on enforcement or uh, guidelines, takeaways for boards with this? They, of course, have their normal tools available to them with the fines and the hearings and the IDRs and that kind of thing. But at least in terms of enforcement, the outright ban is probably the easiest to do. Uh, because if you were to allow it in some way and then you were to impose a lot of administrative burden on the requester to fill out applications and pay deposit, and sign an agreement and supply insurance policies and provide names and contacts and all that stuff, there is a cost to the association for allowing that use. I mean, there's a huge administrative cost in the tracking and the maintaining of that type of information. And, you know, there's no benefit to the association to do this, especially with the incredible amount of liability that we just discussed in this past hour. So, I mean, truly, the outright ban seems to be the better way to go, at least for now. Not to mention, like you said, the, the manager would have all those extra responsibilities as far as monitoring and making sure all the, the boxes are checked, which was not included in their management contract. Correct. That's absolutely right. So again, since it's not part of their regular responsibility, just more management fees. <laughs> yeah. So the takeaways are uh, really plan ahead, make your boards aware of, of this potential exposure. And if you start to see this exposure in your community, then you need to adopt some guidelines and restrictions, right? And that's really where we're at right now, right? I think right. so. Plan ahead, look for the exposure, have the right conversation with your boards and respond accordingly. And if you're redrafting CCNRs, maybe consider adding some language in there uh, while you're doing it. That's a great yeah, idea. Yeah, I think you could anticipate that. Uh, you know, I, uh, so far I've been kind of using, like I mentioned, the business angle because I do think that this is separate from strictly residential use um, as housing primarily. 
Um, and, and again, I think consistent with the, the attack Palm Springs is taking, if you are using your home and, and you're actually separating out some of those amenities or, or spaces, you've actually gone outside of the general accepted residential use. So I think that would probably be one of the angles to look at. But you know, we can always fall back on, on the nuisance angle as well if, if that doesn't happen. But, but certainly putting some protections in there like we do with, with Airbnb um, type situations, I've, I've done that for a lot of different communities on CCRs. Great. Well, thank you guys both so much for uh, donating your, your time today for our listeners so we can educate them on these crazy new things that are popping up. Matt, where can our listeners go to reach you or learn more about your firm? Uh, sure. So I'm with Richardson Ober. So you can reach out to me. My email is matthew at roattorneys.com. Perfect. And it'll be on our website as well uh, under this podcast. Maria, how about yourself? Uh, our web address is briscolaw.net. Uh, my email address is mkao at briscolaw.net. And uh, I guess I'll be listed on there as well. You sure will be. All right. As we end our episode, we'd like to remind our listeners, if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for topics you'd like to learn about, you can email us at feedback at hoashow.org. Join us next time on The HOA Show. To share or subscribe to The HOA Show, visit us at hoashow.org. There, you'll be able to listen to other episodes, find helpful resources relating to HOAs, provide feedback, submit questions, and check out other great stuff. The HOA Show podcast has been made possible by the contributions of Klein Agency insurance brokers, leaders in the community association industry. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast, its presenters and guests do not constitute legal advice. For more information on how the topics and discussion apply to you, please consult with your own legal counsel.